All right. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through uh, 20. The message is entitled, Children of the Kingdom. Jesus has finished expounding the Beatitudes that describe the characteristics of a Christian's character. Um, and it's to his disciples directly, not the crowds. The crowds are in the background. Um, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 gives us that in uh, the Beatitudes 3 to 12. Now, the first four Beatitudes reveal our passive relationship to God by grace through faith. The rest of them are active towards man. And all of them are Beatitudes, not do attitudes. The law was based on doing, revealing man's inability to keep the law. That every mouth may be stopped before God and the whole world be guilty before God because the law is spiritual, revealing the evil and the sin of our heart, Romans 3.10 says, or 3.19. You see, if you're not fully persuaded that your heart is evil above all things, then you're not truly persuaded with God. You're not agreeing with God. You're saying there's some good thing in you that can merit heaven. Poor in spirit. Bankrupt. The first beatitude to deserve God. Even if you could keep all the laws, all the morality, all the ethics, then that's your self-righteousness to present yourself before God. That does not get it. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, that He justifies us, not what we do. The beatitudes are based on being, revealing man's enabling to live the life of the Spirit by being born again. And so Matthew here now turns from the believer's relationship to God to their relationship to the world and identifies it by three things. Let me read here verse 13 to 20. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown and to trample underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do you, um, they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy um, them, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot and one tittle by by, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The relationship of the believer to the world identified by the following. First, the nature of the kingdom of heaven, verse 13 through 16, the nature. Secondly, you have the authority of the kingdom of heaven, verse 17 and 18. And thirdly, the greatness in the kingdom of heaven, verse 19 and 20. From the beginning, who's he talking to? His disciples. The dirty dozen. Okay? First, the nature of the kingdom of heaven, 13 through 16. Look, look at verse 13. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples 
they were to have a transforming influence on this sinful world. The proclamation is a metaphor. You are the salt of heaven or of the earth here. Based on what? They're being enabled by God to live these Beatitudes out through the new birth of the Spirit of God. Having been uh, in agreement with God, being bankrupt, poor in spirit, that they merit salvation based on the atoning work of Christ, not their own. Having mourned over their offense of their sin against God and also over the pain, the misery, and the destruction that their sins committed and did to others. Having come to a state of humble weakness as a servant of God. This is what the gospel does. We look into the mirror and we see the ugliness of our life. And there's nothing that could merit our salvation. Simply by grace through faith. Now notice the illustration is after the characteristic of Saul. That is known for basically three factors. In the days of Jesus, you know, there was no refrigeration. So meat would be salted to um, quicken the... Uh, arrest the decaying and rotting process. And so they would salt the meat so this way it would last. Um, soldiers, in fact, would be paid in salt. And that's where we get the saying, he's worth his weight in salt um, because it was uh, expensive and it was used for everything. Um, and so the disciples of Jesus were to have a preserving effect on uh, this sinful world is what he's saying. Just as we are, to, by our own transformed life in Christ, to have that effect wherever we live, wherever we go, wherever we work. Light. When you walk into a room and, you, and it's dark and you turn on the light, where does the light go? Does it go into the closet? Under the bed? In the drawer? The light permeates everything. Darkness has to leave, right? It's important. Now, salt causes thirst also. So our lives as believers should have a, an effect on sinners. Now, no one can be forced to be saved. And nobody is, I'm not responsible for anybody's salvation. But if I am acting as Saul, then I'm causing them to be inquisitive at least to the way I live and why it is that I live. And questions will come. Doesn't mean they're going to believe. But it's going to prompt that. Causing them to see their bankruptcy before God and desire to be saved, hopefully. You know, it's been said that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you can give him a little salt. Um, he might drink. And so it's important. And I don't mean pushing ourselves on somebody, and we've gone through that through the Beatitudes. There are some Christians that are obnoxious. They force themselves on people, you know, and they get a, a racetrack around their eye, and they think they're being persecuted. No, they hit you, they give you a black eye because you're obnoxious. You know, you know when people don't want to hear you, just go away. Pray for them. No big deal. Salt causes food to taste good, too. A little better. Um, so the believer's life, the same, should be um, evidence of, uh, to sinners that life can be enjoyed. It can have color. That life can only have meaning, really, if there's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that, um, that you're to be in poverty and not to enjoy life. And that life will all, with all its troubles, all its difficulties, all its tragedies, can be lived out in a godly manner through grace and God's empowerment. In spite of all that goes on. Because he is greater than he who is in the world. 
Notice the caution there in 13 to his disciples was that they become, um, might come indifferent and not yield to the Spirit's influence upon the sinful world. The possible potential is stated by Jesus, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? So if the believer ceases to have the natural effect of salt, in this aspect would be the influence of the Spirit, on the sinful world around us, what is to happen to this lost sinful world? Hopeless, helpless. That's why people commit suicide. That's why that young man took his life at, at the city college here in his car. That's why the other jumper two weeks to go off the bridge. That's why people do things they do because it's a hopeless generation. Absolutely hopeless. The horrible end result is stated. It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by man. When salt becomes insipid or flat by the mixing or diluting of it, then um, it no longer is good for, it's good for nothing. It, does, it, it has ceases to, to fit the purpose of its nature to influence, to affect others and things around them, things they come in contact with. So they would simply cast it and throw it in the past, walking past. But even in that insipid uh, condition, at least it kills weeds and vegetation so that people can walk freely on path. If salt is in its full power, it will kill the weeds, even in its weakest form, the weeds that are coming to our life, the vegetation that wants to obscure Christ. And so we yield to him so that he can do that work in us, constantly depending on him. From this, Jesus proclaims in verse 14 and 16 to his disciples that they were to have an illuminating influence also on the sinful world. The proclamation, another metaphor, you are the light of the earth, again based on being enabled to live out the beatitude by being born again. Through the empowerment of the Spirit, the believers are the light of the world indirectly as the instruments of Jesus, for He is the light of the world, John 9, 5 says. But God, Jesus sees us so one with Him that He says, you're the light. He's really the light. But we're so connected to Biden and him that he says you're the light of the world when he really is. So we are the extension of him. We're his hands, his feet. Look at the illustration. It's after the characteristics of light like salt. Light dispels darkness. So the life of a believer dispels the darkness of the sinful world. Not by um, anything of themselves, but by not approving or partaking of it. You don't sit there self-righteous like the Pharisees says, oh, I would never do you, you know, you're, you're around, you see something going on, and there comes a point where you say, you know what, I've got to take off. Thanks for inviting me. You don't become weird and all that. You dirty pagans, you know, I can't believe you invited me here. Um, you're discreet. But your presence is understood by those around you because they're dark. Okay. Light reveals what is hidden, so the believer through his life offers those in darkness the light of God's word. 
that you live in such a way because you know God knows the secret things of your heart, so you live openly. That's different from them, and they know that. Because you know that, because you used to be on the dark side. Now you're on the light side. But you still have a dark heart. <laughs> you used to live on a one-way street. Now you live on a two-way street. You see both sides. You've got a great advantage. But to not be influenced by the dark of your heart, you must stay in the light of the Lord. You must say no to self. Hmm. Light guides so the believer is to warn sinners through the gospel about the coming judgment, pointing them to the cross of Christ that they might be forgiven. One of the true evidence of being born again is that you can't wait to tell your closest friends, your closest family about being forgiven for all they ever did. You know what it is to be forgiven for your rotten things you did. The problem with us is that most of us think we're better than we are. And we don't think we're as bad as we are, even as Christians. The Bible says there's not one good thing in me. Now, if I don't agree with God on that, then I, something's wrong. Only when I believe that nothing good can come of me will I totally depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to hear that today. You know, everybody's, you know, you're so good. You know, it's all in you. Just dig deep and, you know, you've got it together. I love myself. You know, I'm just, it's amazing. We don't throw up over each other. You know what I mean? It's all over. Academia, entertainment, magazines, forever. The elaboration of the metaphor of being the light of the world is stated again by Jesus, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The double metaphor emphasizes the presence and benefit of the light, a visible witness against sin, impossible to miss. Notice it's not against sinners, it's against sin. You love your mother, you love your father, you love your friends that are in sin and drugs and sex or even morality, trusting that. And because you love them, you want to share with them the grace of Jesus Christ. You're a present light. You cannot be missed if you're living in the Spirit. It's easy. Can't get away from it. The word hidden there means to escape notice. They're going to see it. The city might represent the church here corporately as a witness of grace and the power of the gospel to save. What do you think the people across the street have thought about us for 31 years? You know, this street used to be a big drug dealing place. There's still some around, but not as bad as if we weren't here. God has protected this neighborhood. God is good. Notice the explanation of the proper use and purpose of light as stated by Jesus again in 15. A person does not cover up a lit lamp, nor do they uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket. That's, that, that would contradict the purpose that you're doing it for. A person places the lit lamp high above his head or highest place so it can dispel the darkness, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. The city on the hill... President Reagan made that real popular. That, that 
city on, on the hill, that light is for the benefit of the people, everybody who looks at it. It's not there to condemn them. It's not there to exalt themselves above them. It's there to dispel the darkness in their life that they might come to that position of poverty of spirit and cry out to God, forgive me, Lord, cleanse me, save me by your grace. The application is declared by Jesus to his disciples in verse 16. They're not to live as saved and transformed individuals being a light to those in darkness. Contradicting that light. But they're to do it being that light. Let your light so shine before men. Now, this is an imperative command. It's not a suggestion. Living a godly life before God. You know and I know that it doesn't mean sinless or, perf- or, or, or perfection. But it means you don't live the way you used to. Okay? When they give you a pencil, they give you not even a quarter inch of rubber. And they give you about six, seven inches of lead. Well, a bunch of cheapskates. No. They believe that you know how to write, but they know that you will make mistakes, but the mistakes will be so least that that rubber will be sufficient to last the lead. So the grace of God. But I don't buy a pencil, turn it over, and just start getting the rubber, you know, to wear it out. So the grace of God. It will be sufficient, okay, for the length of my life. Living righteous before men. Godliness is vertical. God knows whether I'm being godly. Righteousness is what people see, what I do towards people. The vertical is the important. The horizontal is the result of the vertical. Very, very important. Notice they're to have as their purpose of life to point people to God. That's the whole thing. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The whole purpose is that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians 2.10. The workmanship there, the, we get our word poem from it. You're a, an epistle read of all men and women. So am I. He created me and you for his good pleasure. Wow. The word good there is callous. It means excellent, commendable, admirable. And it's talking about the deeds that we do. Uh, things that are moral, ethical, useful for others and yielding to the, the power of the Spirit. Because that's the only way they can come through. This is the rules. It's real simple. Everything that's good... God gets the glory. Everything comes out of my life that's bad, I get the credit. Okay? Simple rules. Don't be walking around like this, okay? That's a Pharisee and a Sadducee and a scribe, okay? When, you, when something good comes out of your life, you just look to the Lord. Lord, thank you, Jesus. It's real simple. The motive and intent is that people give God the credit and praise the word glorify, doxaso, means magnify, praise, or to give honor to the Father in heaven, not themselves. The scribes and Pharisees were always doing right things, but to be seen of men. So Jesus says, you're like these whitened sepulchers. On the outside, they look so clean and nice, but inside, 
You're full of dead men's bones. Matthew 23, 27. So you can be doing a lot of good things outwardly, but inside? Outside you get an A. Inside you get an F. (laughs) Wow. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, he spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Mishkan, and Abednego, who set his angel to deliver his servants, who trust in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Daniel 3.28. Daniel was the same. These guys were such light in a dark, chaotic world, sinful world of Babylon, and yet they were an example. They were a witness. I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Amazing. The light of God's knowledge and glory was given to Adam and Eve in an untainted state at creation, but they chose sin and darkness. Their children inherited sin nature, as yours and ours do, able to choose to walk in the light of God. Cain chose darkness. Able light. God judged the entire world of Noah, except for eight people, because the world chose to live in darkness, knowing the light of God. God began a new world with eight people that had the light and perfect knowledge of God. Yet, it ended up in the Tower of Babel. There's always that choice, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody is without excuse. The world began with the knowledge of God. It has corrupted, ignored it, twisted it, denied it, rejected it. Doesn't matter. Creation, conscience, history, busted. General revelation. Special revelation, the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The void in America today is over the pulpits of America. They're not preaching the gospel. They're entertaining people. They're motivating people. Spiritual cheerleaders. Not teaching the word of God to people. So that they can depend upon the Lord. Wow. Romans 1, 21, 22 says, Because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Some young people go to universities. Universities are full of fools. 100% fools. Professing themselves to be wise. Many of them are very smart. They have PhDs. Hope they enjoy it in hell. It's not going to help them. You don't get into heaven because you're smart. You get into heaven because you realize that you deserve hell. And you cry out for God's grace and mercy to change your life, to change your heart. The heart of man is deceitful above all things. You believe that? Desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79. The things that proceed from the heart, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18 through 19, is... Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Do you think you're any different? I don't think so. I hope not. 
Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23. Listen to Job. You want to listen to Job? Because he, he went through it. <laughs> and he came out of it. Job 15.14-15 says, If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man, who is abominable and filthy... Here's the kicker. Listen who drinks iniquity like water, bottoms up. My sin nature, it's been 43 years since I've been born again. You want to go sin? I am ready. I am great at sinning. Not one good thing. Wow. The fallen world loves darkness and sin. You know that. Jesus came to be that light. Listen, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who sit in that region in shadow of death, light has dawned. We just read that in chapter 4, verse 16 of Matthew, the Gentiles. Light of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus came. In him, Jesus was life and life was the light of men and the light shines in darkness but the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, 4 and 5 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, John 3, 19. You remember being in the world? You're in a party and somebody turns on the hey, turn those lights out. You're like, you know, like cockroaches. You turn the light on, they scatter. Well, you have the light Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. John twelve thirty six. Walk in that light. So the nature of the kingdom of heaven is spiritual. Very important. Secondly, verse 17 and 18. The authority of the kingdom of heaven is given to us here. Notice in verse 17. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples the relation of the Old Testament scriptures to himself. The proclamation of Jesus was that he did not come to void or abrogate the law or the prophets. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Very clearly. This was because the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes were listening to them. And they were concluding by what he was saying that he was destroying or contradicting the law and the prophets, when in fact what Jesus was doing, he was correcting their misinterpretation and corruption of the law and the prophets. The word destroy means to dissolve or render vain or void. The same word is used for the dissolving of our body in Second Corinthians 5.1, that one day will be just dissolved when we die. Two times in this verse is the personal pronoun I. Jesus is the ultimate authority of the kingdom of heaven. Get that right. The law refers to the first five books of Moses, as you know, Genesis to Deuteronomy. The law contained moral standards and principles and ordinances, statutes and judgments required by the law. Jesus did not violate one aspect of the law, only the twisting self Righteous interpretation and addition of the scribes and Pharisees according to the Mishnah, the Talmuds, and everything else. And though we are not under the Mosaic law, we are responsible to live according to the laws. 
we're liable for punishment. If we break the law, you get a speeding ticket, you're going to have to pay a fine. If you break the law in a way, you may even have to go to jail on certain things, right? You can't just say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not under law. Oh, really? Oh, okay, sorry. I don't think so. The law contains uh, ceremonial rituals, as you know. The entire book of the law, particularly the book of Leviticus, spoke of Jesus in, in types, shadows, and in figures, and, and pr- prophetic fulfillments. Uh, the book of he- Hebrews is classical for this. You ladies are studying it right now. When you get to chapter 10, you can, it says it very, very clearly. And so, Jesus, uh, all of the tabernacle, the furnishings, all spoke of Jesus Christ. The light, the bread, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life. The altar, he's the one who worship is accepted through. The tabernacle, everything else, I don't have the time to go through all the things. When we went through Leviticus, we went over it. All the sacrifices pointing to the shadows of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Lamb of God that takes away the, the sins of the world. And so Hebrews uh, 10, 7 says, Then he said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus speaking to the Father in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now the prophets refers to the prophecies of the coming Messiah, the God-man. The first being the promise to Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman, indicating a virgin would bear a child without the aid of a man sexually. Genesis 3.15. Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, a virgin shall bear a child, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1.23 picks it up in fulfillment of Isaiah. We went through that. It's quite a prophecy. Way back then. By the way, the prophecy and promise of redemption was given to Adam before the consequence of his sin. Where's the mean God? He's graceful. He's merciful. If I was God, I would have smoked at him. And so would have you. Aren't you glad you're not God? The prediction of being the prophet of prophets, requiring the words that he would speak to everyone, Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19. The prophecies that Jesus would die and be risen from the dead to make atonement for the sins of the world that we might be justified in him alone. You see it in Genesis 22 when Abraham takes Isaac to sacrifice him on the mountain. That was a type of Jesus. Jesus picked it up. Moses in the wilderness. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must not a man be lifted up that whoever believes in it should not perish but have everlasting life. Wow. Back in Numbers 14. Psalm 2, the crucifixion is so detailed. Isaiah 53, as a lamp of the slaughter. Dumb, not saying anything. Taking our iniquities upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Notice the purpose of the first coming of Jesus is stated by him. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus repeated for the second time that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets for emphasis, not because he forgot. You're a parent, or if you are a parent, you know what Jesus is saying. Because you tell your kids, listen to me, listen. Because you know how kids are. Well, we're God's kids. And he knows how kids are. (laughs) All right? No different. Jesus plainly said, 
but to fulfill. The word fulfill means to fill up to the top, to render complete. You fill a glass full of water to the brim before it overflows. That's complete. That's the word. Jesus fulfilled the law as the God-man. The last Adam, as we declared when we saw the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He defeated Satan as a man, not as God. Identical to the first Adam, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five. He came to demonstrate that the first Adam did not have to fail, but chose to fail. And he demonstrated that he, identical to the first Adam, would not fail. Now you stand in the first Adam, fallen, guilty of your sin, alienated for God, or you stand in the last Adam, justified in the grace of God. One of the two places. It's a choice based on your repentance and agreement with God. Look at 18. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples the, real, uh, the reliability here and trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures that it's unquestionable. Uh, Jesus, as the greatest authority, declares, listen, for assuredly I say to you, the word assuredly there is amen. At the beginning of a sentence, it indicates absolute truth and the greatest of importance. You, you might say, listen carefully, this is vital for life. This is very important. Listen, verily or assuredly or truly, depends the translation. The interesting thing is I was looking at this, studying it, is that it never hit me, but there's a double repetition, verily, verily, truly, truly, assuredly, assuredly, but in none of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's never stated. Only John has it. Only John. 25 times. But when I, you read it in the New King James, it says, most assuredly. It's the Old King James that says, verily, verily. I like the Old King James. 25 times. Only in John. He's saying, this is very, very important. Pay attention. When the word amen is put at the end of the sentence in the Greek, it means, so be it. Let it be affirming and confirming that what has been stated is valid truth and is to come to pass. So the word, though it's the same, if it's the beginning, it means different than at the end. Now, notice still in 18, Jesus declared not one thing will be left out or missed that is written in the scriptures about him. Jesus knew there were many more things to be fulfilled in the future. For he says, till heaven and earth pass away. There's the gathering of the church, there's the fulfillment of the seven-year tribulation, and the judgments, the remaining um, remnant of Israel that will be gathered. There's the uh, second coming to judge the world. There's the kingdom age and many other things. So Jesus knew that um, all things will be fulfilled up to the point that is included for the first coming. Jesus stated that before heaven and earth are dissolved, with fire, everything written will be fulfilled. So he fulfilled already many things, but everything will be fulfilled. He says, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The jot is the smallest Hebrew letter. The tittle is the horn hook projection as a mark over the letter to distinguish it from another. The minutest detail will be fulfilled. That's very important. 
Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming. Not one thing was missed. Jesus said, it is finished. John 19.35. It is finished. Complete. So, for his first coming, not one thing was left out. Many of them, as he was hanging on the cross dying, none were left out for he said from the cross, again, it is finished. John 19.30. Wow. Now, either he's telling the truth or he's lying. Which is it? If it's the word of God, and we're going to see that's infallible in there, and then it's absolute truth. Listen to um, A.W. Tozer, a pastor of the previous century. I'm sure he wasn't liked very much because he didn't mess around. He just shot straight. Listen to him. It is in his devotional, Renewed Day by Day, September 24th. Quote, I observed with... Um, Pain amusement, how many water boys of the pulpit in their efforts to be prophets and standing up straight and tall and speaking out boldly in favor of ideas that have been previously fed into their minds by the psychiatrists, sociologists, the novelists, the socialists, uh, the scientists, and secular educators. A new decalogue has been adapted by the neo-Christians, which is neither new nor Christian, of our day, the first word of which reads, Thou shalt not disagree. A new set of Beatitudes, too, which begins, Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable for anything. Welcome to America. The millennialists, the entitled generation. Wow, do they need Jesus Christ? Just like we needed Jesus Christ. So there's a different gospel being proclaimed over the pulpits of America today. Ladies and gentlemen, that's part of the reason why we're in the trouble we're in. Yes, public education is the Trojan horse to America's downfall. The belief in humanism. That science has all the solutions. No, it doesn't. And science has been corrupted, twisted. True science does not contradict the scriptures. Hypothesis always contradict the scriptures. Always. Do you believe God gave all the books of the Bible or just some of them? And if so, then who's going to tell me which one are of God and which ones are not? You? All scriptures given by inspiration of God as profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For instruction and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Do you believe that? All scriptures inspired. Theopanusto. Expired out from God. Every bit of it. One Joel, one tittle. Do you have complete confidence in the scriptures that are infallible and inerrant? Both Old and New Testament. The majority of Christian colleges don't believe that. Fuller Seminary, they don't believe it. Do you believe it? If you don't, then how can you in good conscience proclaim the word of God with all authority to anybody when you might be giving something that's an error? And people always say, well, there's all kinds of errors in the Bible. Next time they say that, say, look, open up your Bible and say, here, show me one. They never read the Bible. 
They're repeating the same lie everybody says. Listen to Second Peter 1, 19-21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Speaking of the Old Testament. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That's Christ. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, let me tell you, private interpretation, it's a, raw, it's a bad translation. It means it's of no natural impulse or origin. In other words, these men did not speak of their own impulse or origin. Now, the rest of it will verify this. Listen. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, literally carried. Second Peter 1, 19-21. These two verses, Timothy and Peter, inerrant, infallible. Very important. Do you realize there has never been one piece of evidence in history or archaeology that has ever contradicted or proven the Bible wrong, but only confirmed it? A great testimony to the Scriptures, the very Word of God. Paul the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. This is God's word. It doesn't become God's word as the neo-Orthodox taught over here in Fuller Seminary through the invasion of the German school of thought. It is God's word. Whether you ever read it, believe it, or whatever, it doesn't matter. You'll be gone, it will still be here. The authority of the kingdom of heaven is the scriptures. Not you, not I. Notice thirdly comes the greatness in the kingdom of heaven, 1920. The greatness here. Jesus proclaims to his disciples there are two classes of men in the kingdom of heaven. The proclamation of Jesus first points out that those who disobey and teach others to do the same. Listen to his words. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men's soul. The scribes and the Pharisees were the main culprits here, as you know. There were exceptions like Nicodemus and that, but for the most part. Jesus will go on to give six examples of how they violated the law and taught others to violate it also. The repeated phrase, you have heard this has been said of those of old, but I say to you, six times, verse 21, 22, 27, 28, 31, 32, 33, 34, 38, 39, 43, 44. Six times. They were doing these things outwardly, literally, but inside they were wrong and they were corrupting and misinterpreting the word of God. They were religious men interested and motivated by the desire to be seen of men as righteous. There are many people like that. It's in our flesh. Oh, look how he holds his Bible. Now he says, God. And he kind of tilts his head a little bit. And, you know, it's amazing. They believe the outward keeping of the law fulfilled the law. They utterly failed 
in not seeing the law being spiritual to deal with the evil of the heart, revealing that though one may not have committed adultery literally, physically, they were guilty of it in the lust of their heart. See, they said, well, I didn't do that. Then I'm not guilty. Jesus says, now you're busted. Because the law is spiritual. The law is to nail your heart. Paul says, I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, Josh shall not covet after he became born again. Wow. Notice the proclamation of Jesus declared his judgment over one who disobeys and teaches others to do so. Shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The word least here refers to the least importance, authority, rank, or excellence here on earth. Even though they declare to know God. Even though outwardly it appears that it's going on. Now this does not mean they will be least in heaven. It means they will not be in heaven. We'll make this, we'll see this confirm as we move on. The phrase kingdom of heaven, remember, indicates God's rule over the earth with reference to the prophecy of the Old Testament concerning the kingdom of heaven, um, the kingdom here on earth from heaven, to set up the kingdom on earth. Daniel chapter 4 speaks about it. Now, notice the proclamation of Jesus declared his judgment over the one who obeys and teaches others to do the same. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The word great is megas. We use the expression, he's got mega bucks. A lot of them. It refers to the person's importance, value, authority, and virtue here on earth. A true child of God. This means they will be in heaven and they will be rewarded according to the motive and intent of the heart. Why and how you did it. Not what you did and how much you did. The beam of seed of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 and many other passages. Now, Jesus proclaimed to his disciples how to enter the kingdom of heaven in verse 20 here. The proclamation of Jesus is as the ultimate authority once again. For I say to you, who's he talking to? His disciples, don't miss this. This again stands in contrast to the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. This also stands for correcting the wrong and false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees through the six examples that I pointed out that will follow this. The proclamation of Jesus is a sharp warning to the multitudes? Indirectly, but directly to who? The dirty dozen. To the twelve. If there is no potential, why mention it? Do you as a parent mention something that has no potential in your child's life? Of course not. The warning of Jesus is against false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrisy and duplicity of their lifestyle, the corrupt and false teaching of the law by the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice the judgment of Jesus to his disciples is that if they do not heed the warning, they will end up like the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen, you will by no means enter 
the kingdom of God. So what do you do with eternal security? Calvinist? Uh, let's, not, let's not spend too much time. Let's move on. <laughs> this is the key verse to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the key verse to the Sermon on the Mount. Put stars around it. Lights. Wow. The warning and proclamation is to every person who calls themselves a Christian and thinks only outward obedience matters while ignoring the motive and intent of the heart contradicting the scriptures. Wow. God, be merciful to me. I am rotten to the core. Some of you think I walk on water. I'm as rotten as you. Maybe more. It's just God's grace. You understand? And if you're not convinced of that, then you are hopelessly lost. Wow. Attempting to declare that you can live out the Sermon on the Mount through your own abilities and strains and morality is that you would say that you can jump out of an airplane with your backpack and it's going to open up like a parachute. I don't think so. You can believe it, but you're going to find out quickly that you're wrong. Listen to Paul's autobiography as he confesses his attempt after being a Christian to fulfill the life of Christ apart from the spirit and power of Christ. Paul thought he could do it. I'm going to read you. It's lengthy in Romans, but it's necessary and essential at this point. Don't miss it. Listen. Romans 7, verse 7 through 25. This is not the warfare. Many people teach Romans 7 as the warfare. It is not. The warfare is found in Ephesians and Galatians. This is willful defeat by believing you can still do it in your abilities. Listen carefully. Beginning verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Perish the thought. God forbid. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. When did he find this out? After he was born again. Prior to being born again, read his accolades and his accomplishment in, in Philippians. I was blameless in the law. I was superseded my contemporary. I smoked him. I, you know, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. This is his conclusion after he's born again. So all of a sudden, the law became death to him, as he says here. Listen to what he says there. But sin, and when you read sin in this context, that's sin nature. But sin nature, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin nature was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin nature revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin nature, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just and good. How then... Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin nature, that it might appear sin, has produced death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin nature is the word that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do not will, uh, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. Now, Paul is not saying he's not responsible. He's saying that he sees two members, two different principles. He's got a new nature. He's got an old nature. Okay? And he says, I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Only a Christian can say this. Only a Christian has this problem. Did you ever have this problem before you were a Christian? No way. Now listen. And so he says, But I see another law of my members, warring against the law of my mind, to bring me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. I, oh, and so he comes to the conclusion, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Wow. He comes to the conclusion, I can't do it. I've tried, I can't do it. That's right. You can only do it by being filled with the Spirit of God, depending on the Lord Jesus Christ. 31 times, I. Personal pronoun. 31 times, I, 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 I. We move to chapter 8, no more eyes. Now is the power of God. Listen to him. God provides the way and the ability through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 through 4. God has provided the way here. There is therefore no, now no condemnation those from Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life of Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and account of sin... He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Praise God. Jesus fulfilled it. Nothing less than this will enable me and you to live the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Personal human ability will not get it. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23. Deny means lose sight of yourself. That's every day. Paul came to his understanding finally. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. That's where you have to be, ladies and gentlemen, every day and so do I. If I don't walk in the Spirit, I'll walk in the flesh. There's no C. It's A or B. Wow. The greatness of the kingdom of heaven is living in the Spirit. So Matthew 
turn from the believer's relationship to God and the Beatitudes to the believer's relationship to the world. Identified by these three things. The nature of the kingdom of heaven is spiritual. The authority of the kingdom of heaven is the scriptures. And the greatness in the kingdom of heaven is living in the spirit. Wow. Every one of us. No exception. Father, we thank you. We worship you. We thank you for your grace and love. And Lord, we pray even now you would just deal with our hearts. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. If you believe this, call upon him and he will save you right now. If you're here over the internet or the radio, if you see yourself in sin, unable to merit presence before God, then that's the work of the Spirit of God. Now, you can call on His name. And he says He will forgive you and make you a child of God by grace through faith. It's called repentance. If this is your desire, this is your prayer right now. You can repeat it and He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.